choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 305 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, pre-launch. Good evening from the Kennedy Space Center. Apollo 14 marks a renewal of this country's program to explore the moon and a personal comeback for its commander. Despite a happy ending, Apollo 13 was a setback for moon exploration. Now Apollo 14 will try to do what 13 did not. The landing site is the same near the Frau Morrow crater in rough terrain believed of much older material than that brought back by the first two moon explorations. Again, two long moon walks are planned and most of the experiments are the same as those scheduled for 13. The main differences, new onboard safety devices and extra supplies are in direct response to the Apollo 13 explosion and the long, perilous voyage home in its lunar module lifeboat. The Apollo 14 crew, which departs from here Sunday afternoon, will be commanded by 47-year-old Alan Shepard, the least experienced of space veterans. His teammates will be two space rookies, 40-year-old Edgar Mitchell, who will accompany Shepard to the moon's surface, and Stuart Rusev, 37, who will remain aloft in the command ship. Alan Shepard, Stuart Rusa, and Edgar Mitchell trained for their mission for 19 months, longer than any crew before them. In addition to the normal workload, Stuart Rusa had to look after the modifications to the command and service modules, and much to his delight, Shepard had let Rusa handle it. He didn't micromanage, he wasn't afraid to delegate. He had faith in his crew, and Rusa had every faith in Shepard. To Rusa, Shepard was the most competent astronaut in the office. Yeah, I think there's something different about Al. He's probably one of the uh, most talented people in, in our business that, uh, that I've come across. You know, he's, a, he's extremely uh, uh, cool and, uh, and from a flying standpoint, you know, it, but he's always right to the heart of the problem. Ed Mitchell felt pretty much the same way. Al has a responsibility for the overall success of this mission as far as the crew is concerned. He exercises it well, but he allows Stu and I to do our jobs and do them to the best of our ability. And so I haven't seen any temperament that you talk about. One thing was certain. This wasn't the same big Al who had lorded over the astronaut office. When he came on flight status, Shepard stepped down gracefully to the trench work of a mission commander. He was genuinely pleasant to work for. Rusa even introduced him to his parents, and Shepard charmed them. It seemed once Shepard accepted a person into his inner circle, 
he could be surprisingly open. Of course, he could still turn to ice without warning, which is to say he was still Alan Shepard. But he never directed that anger at his crew, and when it came time to make up a mission patch, Shepard sketched a design that showed an astronaut pin flying from the Earth to the moon to convey that the entire astronaut office was going along in spirit. In his own way, Shepard was the best commander Rusa could have asked for. He nicknamed him Fearless Leader. But even now, Rusa did not think of them as friends, and they were not the type of crew that would go out for adult beverages together at the end of the day. But what the crew did share was a common goal, and what they shared with every crew before them was a burning desire for a full-up mission, that is, every objective on the flight plan accomplished. This time, a full-up mission had special importance. NASA could not afford another failure. On November 9, 1970, the Apollo 14 Saturn V assembly, as tall as a 36-story building, rolled out of the vehicle assembly building on the proportionately huge crawler, transporter, that crept along the crawler way towards launch pad 39A, some three and a half miles away. The crew of Apollo 14 was photographed in front of the giant rocket. Rusa and Mitchell wore suits and ties. Shepard, standing in the middle, was dressed casually in a banlon shirt and sported a stereotypical smiling owl grin. The threesome also answered questions from the press. The business-like attitude of the crew carried over to their perspective regarding the rollout. While the sight of a Saturn V was impressive to most observers, Shepard, Rusa, and Mitchell didn't gawk and didn't find the scenario of the slow-moving giant to be intimidating. They had all seen Saturn V launches in person and had been training for one for quite some time. It would still be almost three months before the Apollo 14 launch, so for them, the rollout was an event that they took in stride as part of the process. Apollo astronauts were allowed to take along personal items, including small souvenirs such as patches and pins to present to family and friends when they returned from their flights. The items were stored inside each astronaut's Personal Preference Kit, or PPK. In addition to personal items, Stuart Roos's PPK would contain hundreds of tree seeds as a tribute to his days as a smoke jumper with the Forest Service. Ed Clift, head of the Forest Service during Roos's training for Apollo 14, knew that the command module pilot had been a smoke jumper and asked Rusa to transport the seeds in his PPK. The concept had sort of a Johnny Appleseed in outer space connotation, and Rusa agreed, saying that it would be a unique way to honor smoke jumpers and firefighters. A Forest Service official named Stan Krugman was assigned to the project. Krugman selected loblolly pine, sycamore, sweet gum, redwood, and Douglas fir seeds. If all went well, Hundreds of moon trees would be germinated from the seeds that were going on the lunar voyage. Apollo 14 was different from previous flights in another way. Due to the measles debacle with Apollo 13, 
the crew of Apollo 14 was quarantined for three weeks prior to launch, long before the usual time that spaceflight crews had been pulled away from public contact. Apollo 14 was scheduled for launch on Sunday, January 31st at 3.23 p.m. The countdown actually began on January 25th and would last for 102 hours with a total of 48 scheduled holds. As the countdown proceeded, several ominous events occurred. On January 23, 1971, Gene Cernan crashed a small helicopter that had been used for lunar landing training into the Indian River near Cape Kennedy. While he was not seriously injured, the Apollo 14 backup commander immediately pondered that he had seriously jeopardized his chance to command the final moon flight, Apollo 17. On January 29th, Two days prior to launch, one of NASA's lunar landing research vehicles, a lunar module trainer, crashed at Ellington Air Force Base near Houston. It was the same vehicle that Shepard had been using to train for the upcoming landing at Framaro. NASA pilot Stuart Present, who was not an astronaut, ejected safely, but the $1.9 million vehicle was a total loss. The same day, President Richard Nixon issued a budget statement that requested permission to cut another $217 million from the space program. The helicopter and the lunar landing research vehicle crashes, as well as the announced budget slash, would not affect the countdown for Apollo 14, but the timing of those incidents seemed foreboding to some observers. In the final days before launch, members of electronic and print media descended on the Cape to provide complete coverage, but there was limited access to the astronauts due to the pre-launch quarantine. Walter Cronkite reported, quote, With the astronauts in perfect health, space officials are making sure they stay that way. The three pilots will be restricted to quarters all week, under a new medical isolation policy. No more German measles scares, such as that which knocked astronaut Tom Mattingly out of the Apollo 13 flight last spring. End quote. Cronkite also reported that a supervising space official said that no Apollo crew had ever been so well trained for a mission. And a CBS story by Bill Stout from Downey detailed the changes made to the Command and Service Module spacecraft since the Apollo 13 disaster, noting that the improvements would give the Apollo 14 crew a greater margin of safety. However, other television stories on the pending Apollo 14 flight cited other possible problems, besides the ones astronauts would face in outer space, and some of the reports probably came across as morbid or controversial to NASA officials and employees. ABC science editor Jules Bergman reported that more than 10,000 engineers and technicians had been laid off in the last 18 months. He continued, quote, After the near disaster of Apollo 13, 
when human error nearly cost the lives of the astronauts. The space agency suddenly realized that men in fear of losing their jobs might not be able to do their best. There are 13 million parts in the Saturn V rocket, and while sometimes several can fail, it only takes one critical part failing to end the mission or cause a catastrophe. End quote. Bergman then cited the motivational films and recordings the Apollo 14 crew had made for space workers, pronouncing them to be pep talks, and also noted that the morale building extended to posters and bumper stickers, emphasizing togetherness, dedication, and teamwork. Bergman said, quote, Morale seems to have gone up, but no one is sure, and there are reports of possible new layoffs, which is why everyone, including the Apollo 14 crew, is still worried, end quote. Another story noted that one out of every ten homes in Titusville, Florida, the town nearest to the Cape, was vacant, and that there had been 400 Federal Housing Administration repossessions there. Unemployed NASA engineers were shown taking a real estate course. NBC's John Chancellor also reported on the morale-boosting announcements made by the crew citing a tape that was played three times a day, as well as 12,000 letters that were mailed from the astronauts to employees, and the issuance of motivational booklets and pamphlets. And the media was always willing to report on the cost of Apollo. The Apollo 14 moon mission is ready to go at an estimated cost of $400 million, which is $25 million more than was spent on last spring's Apollo 13. Some reports, while noting the extensive preparation by the crew, pointed out that this was the first prime crew that did not include a former crew member of a Gemini flight. Profiles of the crew always cited Shepard first, recalling his Mercury flight, how he overcame his ear disorder, and how he rededicated himself to training. Overall, the reporting was thorough, as newscasters and writers focused on the ambitious plan for the two moonwalkers, which included two EVAs that could last up to five hours each. Still, the tone of a lot of the coverage wasn't particularly upbeat, as summarized by Jules Bergman at the conclusion of one of his reports. Quote, no flight has been more ambitious or tougher, and the space agency is running scared. Should Apollo 14 fail in the aftermath of the recent Apollo 13 near disaster, it just might mean the end of the entire Apollo lunar landing program. End quote. On January 30th, the day before launch, Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherall submitted this report from the Cape. Wally, it seems to me, has got all the feel of a football Saturday here at the Cape. The weather is perfect, the cloudless skies, temperature in the mid-70s, and a football crowd attitude in Cocoa Beach, too. There's all this talk, of course, that space flight trips to the moon, if you please, are boring the American people. Well, a half million of them have come here to crowd into this corner of Florida this weekend to watch the launch of Apollo 14. And the European Broadcasting Union says that 600 million people around the world are going to be watching on television. 
television. Here the guest list includes American officialdom and European, Hollywood and industrial royalty, Vice President Agnew, Spain's ruler-designate, young Prince Juan Carlos and his princess, Bob Hope, Kirk Douglas, Cary Grant, the president of General Motors, the president of the Steelworkers Union, a Kansas City optics tycoon chartered a jumbo jet to bring his friends here, including 30 millionaires and three Middle Western governors. And of course, uh, of all the distinguished guests here, the wives and the children of the astronauts, but so careful is NASA that these flyers don't repeat the measles debacle of Apollo 13 that visits have about all the charm of a Saturday afternoon at Sing Sing through a plate glass window. There's some interest in this flight at any rate, it seems, no matter how bored some may be. As a matter of fact, Wally, the spectacle aspect seems to me to overlay an atmosphere of almost unprecedented calm here at the Cape among space people. Well, I, I felt that. It's, it's almost an eerie feeling. We, we, we normally would expect to have some tank wouldn't fuel right or some system wouldn't check out right or we'd have a lightning storm, but everything is going uh, just nominal is the good word, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there was a little glitch in the power this afternoon that gave them some worry. Uh, the, the power dropped out. They thought the computers might have been affected, but it turned out they weren't. Everything's fine. Everything's go. The astronauts are in good shape. The spacecraft in good shape. A little uh, cold front coming down from the north that might give a weather problem tomorrow, but they say it looks like it's going to be okay for liftoff at 3.23 tomorrow afternoon, Eastern Time. On the day before launch, the Rusa family could be found at the Holiday Inn in Cocoa Beach. Security personnel monitored the children closely, even when they went to the beach to play volleyball. Signs at motels, gas stations, and other businesses in the area bore the message, Good Luck, Apollo 14, and similar good wishes, and the astronauts' names were listed on some of them. On the eve of launch day, the wives of the astronauts were briefly allowed into the quarantine room for a quiet dinner with their husbands. After dinner, Louise left the quarantine room and turned for one last goodbye. Standing on opposite sides of a thick window, Louise and Alan pressed their lips to the glass. Then Alan told her he wouldn't be making his customary 5 p.m. phone call the next evening. I'm going to be leaving town, he said. Later that night, Louise attended a reception held by Alan's friend, John King, the millionaire oil man and rancher from Colorado. As soon as she arrived, she saw Cary Grant standing by the bar getting a cocktail. Louise's friends dragged her over to meet her favorite actor. Grant asked her about the next day's flight, and Louise told him what she had been telling the newspapers in recent weeks. I'm constantly aware of the moon these days, she said. It takes on a whole new look when you know your husband is going up there for a visit. Later that evening, Shepard and Cernan drove out to observe the gigantic Saturn V under the glare of the spotlights, and Cernan was assured of not only Shepard's commitment to Apollo 14, but the Prime Commander's enduring commitment to the space program, as he had endeavored to return to space for a decade. Cernan would later say of that evening that Shepard was, quote, determined and committed to somehow, somewhere, fly again. That commitment came out loud and clear that night. A lot of people would have given up earlier. 
he was a good guy to work for, and in retrospect, he deserved the flight. End quote. January 31, 1971, launch day. The crew was awakened inside their quarters inside the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building and had the traditional pre-launch breakfast of steak and eggs with Deke Slayton and other NASA officials joining them. Out on the launch pad, NASA technicians were going about their assigned duties preparing the -the state-of-the-art space vehicle for its journey. An astronaut checked out the interior of the command module in a final inspection prior to launch. The Rusa family went to Mass that Sunday morning. Rusa's son recalled that it was a very quiet time, but after that, things got real busy, real fast. The launch flying back to Houston in a Learjet and a house full of people. The skies were slightly overcast, adding a question mark about how the weather would evolve during the day. Kennedy Space Center Launch Director Walter Caprian, who had been in that position of responsibility since 1966, watched the skies and the weather reports intensely. The Sunday, January 31st, souvenir edition of Today, Florida's Space Age newspaper featured a full-color drawing of the Apollo 14 crew on its front page and hyped the mission as the most televised ever as eight broadcasts from the crew were planned. One page of the special edition featured profiles of all three astronauts, and perhaps not surprisingly, Alan Shepard's profile took up the entire top half. While the biographies of Mitchell and Rusa were found on the lower left quarter and the lower right quarter on the page. Shepard's profile had the expected story of his battle back from his health problems, and Mitchell's interest in extrasensory perception was noted in the story on the lunar module pilot. Rusa's profile suggested that his red hair, freckles, and fashionable clothes leave people with the impression that he is younger than 37 and that his enthusiasm that he carries into everything heightens that impression. Standard protocol was in place for Shepard and Mitchell's family to view the launch from a private VIP section for immediate family members. It was located three miles from the launch pad. However, special arrangements had been made for Rusa's family, and they were stationed in a cordoned-off area by the door of the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building, where they would be able to see the three astronauts emerge and board the van that would shuttle them to the launch complex. Politicians and entertainment celebrities were also on hand for the launch, including actors Kurt Douglas and Charlton Heston. The Rusa family members stood in their special area in front of the crowd and were asked if they minded if National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger joined them in that area. The Rusas acceded to NASA's request.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 305 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14 Pre-Launch. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 135 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. My sources for this week's episode were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure Is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Flight by Chris Kraft, The Internet Archive, CBS News, Apollo 14 Flight Journal, The Academy of Achievement, and Wikipedia. Well, the audience is present, the stage is set, the curtain is raised for the launch of Apollo 14 next week on the podcast. I wanted to convey a few things in this episode that I hope came across. First, I wanted to present the perspective of the family of the astronauts during the countdown to the launch. By request of Rusa's parents, his family was allowed to watch the suited-up astronauts coming out of the building and riding off to the launch pad. And, as a bonus, they got to meet Henry Kissinger. By the way, the same courtesy was offered to the Shepard and Mitchell families. Second, I wanted to express the change in Shepard's personality since he was now on a mission, and a little bit of how the crew relationship had really improved. Third, that the end of the Apollo program is in sight. The government is cutting the budget and the negative effect it took on the employees who had lost their jobs or feared losing them soon. But more than that, I wanted you to think about the finality of it all. After Apollo 17, it will be more than half a century before we attempt to send humans to the moon again. So I hope you join with me and savor every moment and enjoy it to the uttermost as we relive mankind's greatest adventure. Okay, the pictures for this episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Stick around to the end of the podcast because I do have one little off-topic experience I'd like to share with you. For those of you who are enjoying the program, you might have noticed that we have no commercials or ad revenue, nor do we have a government grant or a corporate endowment. We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, as well as being entered into the weekly giveaway. After the terrible first two weeks in June, we were pleased to receive 11 contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Graham M. from Australia sent in another donation this year and moved to the Apollo level. Peter M. from California donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Chris D. from California sent in another donation this year and moved to the shuttle level. Kevin M. donated at the Mercury level. Jim M. from Tennessee donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. 
Christian R. from New Jersey sent in another donation this year and moved to the mere ISS level. Steve C. from Georgia sent in another donation this year and moved to the commercial level. Bob F. from Massachusetts donated at the Apollo level. Lawrence W. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Ben R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Lars M. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Thank you so much for supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. We really appreciate it. We've had a really tough June for some reason. I'm not quite sure. We're now at 226 Patreon donors with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 353 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. For the 353 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Here's Mrs. SRH. Thanks, Mike. I am happy to announce the winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Kent Cook. Kent Cook, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 353 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Folks, I want to tell you about something that happened last week. Space Rocket History website endured its first hacking attack. And... (laughs) I didn't think we were big enough to get hacked, but I guess you don't have to be that big to get hacked. Anyway, what happened was a listener contacted me, and that was Martin, and thank you very much for contacting me. And he told me that if you search for Space Rocket History on Google and click on the first link, your website goes to an online pharmacy. And that's not right. It should go to the homepage of the website. And I tried it, and yes, that's what happened. So I called up my host, GoDaddy, and they told me, well, it's nothing we're doing. You need to talk to Google about it. So I sent into Google a request to talk to me about that, and they, of course, did not respond at all. So I pretty much got the runaround. Then I talked to my uh, son-in-law, who also runs the uh, Military History Podcast that you should check out. And he told me, or he showed me, uh, where I had been attacked in the code. We went to GoDaddy, and we changed the code a little bit and took care of what someone, some kind soul, had put in there to redirect all the clicks off of Google to their online pharmacy. So we fixed it. And now we should be good. So if you search for Space Rocket History on Google, you should be able to get my website this time. And if you don't, how about letting me know, because I'd like to get that fixed if it happens again. All right, that's all I had for this week. I'll try to get episode 306 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.